there, there's a terrific article in the New York Times about that uh, coffee shop in New York where supposedly all the staff quit because the Israeli-American owner was just too overtly pro-Israel and then the Jewish community rallied behind the, the, the cafe and uh, their business went up a thousand percent and it was a story celebrated in the New York Post and Fox News and presented in a very one-sided people who quit the, the cafe were uh, mass supporters and uh, New York Times presented the story with much more nuance so here's something that I'm anecdotally noticing uh, it's no shock that almost all Jews have, have reacted viscerally to the October 7 Hamas attacks and that uh, it, it uh, it definitely triggers something in, in Jews. So probably you know, over 80% of uh, American Jews have a very strong negative reaction to what happened October 7 in southern Israel, where approximately 1,200 uh, Israelis were, were massacred in the Hamas attacks. And as a result, uh, many American Jews are becoming more overtly uh, pro-Jewish, pro-Israel, and then I'm noticing anecdotally as a result, a lot of employees uh, are becoming more pro-Palestine. So this is, the, this is the law of unintended consequences, or I think Tom Sowell would talk about moving beyond stage one thinking. Stage one thinking is just, I do this, and therefore I push forward whatever it is that I'm after. But whenever you do or say or advocate something, right, it almost always engenders opposition and backlash. Uh, Tom Sowell also said there are no solutions to any trade-offs. So all sorts of people who would never have said, you know, free Palestine, and now whispering or saying it and posting it on social media uh, in reaction to the... You know, strongly pro-Israel, pro-Jewish sentiments of their Jewish bosses. And uh, for the non-Jews, right, who stay up on the news, they're aware that we live in a world of tragedy. And so Armenians, for example, have been particularly hard hit by Azerbaijan's offensives over the past few years, taking back Nagorno-Karabakh and something like 120,000 Armenians have been ethnically cleansed. And, you know, there are always awful things happening in the world. But, you know, understandably, Jews take Jewish suffering more seriously and more viscerally than the non-Jews. And by, by running around Israel, that's stage one. Stage two is the non-Jews are then similarly uh, triggered and provoked. And if they harbor any ambivalence or negative feelings about their Jewish bosses, or they start to feel resentful 
for, for various reasons, right? They're going to suddenly start seeing free Palestine, which would never have occurred to them uh, before. And so this uh, Israeli American cafe owner in New York, he started uh, putting up all this pro-Israel material in his coffee shop. And uh, that then thrust his, I would expect, large, largely non-Jewish employees into, into an uncomfortable position. Right? They didn't want to you know, get involved in some you know, Middle Eastern argument. And so Americans who have you know, allowed in immigrants from all parts of the world also allowed in all sorts of ethnic strife that was not not indigenous to America. So because so many uh, Muslims have moved to America in the last 20 years, right, suddenly you have much stronger, you know, pro-Palestine sentiment. And uh, all sorts of non-Jewish employees have never really thought about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now, without necessarily thinking deeply about it, just viscerally becoming attuned to the pro-Palestine side because they see their employers and their workplaces you know, being turned into something that they're not comfortable with. And so the popular story pushed out by Fox News and the New York Post was not it's not accurate, it's not like all the employees quit at once. And so think about those pictures of Israeli hostages, right, put up on flyers. And they're up on flyers all around my neighborhood. And to me, these flyers are sacred, right? As a convert to Orthodox Judaism, like I feel, you know, the, the attacks are like, you know, the center of my cerebral uh, cortex. And sometimes when I'm walking along, like I will touch these flyers about the Israeli hostages as though they're a talisman, as though they're a sacred object, because to me they are sacred. But at the same time, because these flyers to me are sacred, I understand why other people are tearing them down, because the, the flyers inevitably are, are part of a political and military conflict. And so for those people for whom Palestinian suffering is sacred, it makes perfect sense why they would want to tear down flyers you know, memorializing the, the suffering of Israelis. Right now it looks like pretty much a zero-sum conflict when you know, Israel thrives and prospers, uh, the Palestinians suffer. And so you know, on the face of it, you may think, oh, this, uh, these flyers for the Israeli hostages, that's just a humanitarian gesture. But uh, almost everything can, can be turned into a friend-enemy distinction. And uh, these, these flyers about Israeli hostages you know, do turn into a friend-enemy distinction. And uh, many employees don't want to be a part of it. They don't want to have to explain and defend and justify this uh, 
least conflict just like uh, many Starbucks employees didn't want to you know, talk about race. Remember when Starbucks many years ago you know, promoted a campaign to talk about race with your barista? You know, understandably, Starbucks employees didn't want to talk about it. Like, think about how you rock up to work. You may have a greasy stomach, you may not be feeling the best, you don't want to be bothered. For most people, they're just doing their job to get a paycheck and your workplace becoming embroiled in controversy just increases the stress and the toll this particular form of work and uh, getting a job as a barista I would imagine is not difficult so you just increase the stress and storm and drang of uh, one, one cafe and yeah, I can understand why many employees would be incentivized to, to leave. And so initially only one employee left. And uh, then one employee stayed behind. He started wearing a uh, Palestinian flag uh, as a lapel pin and an Israeli flag, right? And uh, after one day of this, he didn't want to get pulled in. And so he quit. And uh, the cafe owner's mother saw an employee wearing a, a Palestine flag. And she caught up her son and you know, said, how could you allow this? And so when you've got a hot button contentious issue and you're just you're the owner of promoting one side of this issue, and it's understandable that most of your employees don't want to get involved and don't want to have you know, these kind of contentious discussions or debates or just you know, play any role. And they're wearing a Israel pin and a Palestine pin. It seems like uh, one way that one employee tried to you know, ameliorate the, the controversy, but then life often forces you into taking sides or just quitting, quitting the job. So, Almost all of those who quit don't want to be named publicly because they've been you know, publicly defamed as Hamas supporters. And really, they're just uh, baristas who just wanted to collect their paycheck and do a job without aggravation, <laughs> without controversy. They just you know, wanted to... Most people, when they go to work, they don't want unnecessary drama that uh, pushes people's buttons to you know, 100 out of 100 in intensity level. So, when uh, when government legislates something, right, it often provokes a backlash when one side of the political spectrum pushes something uh, extreme then the other side of the political spectrum is galvanized. So during Donald Trump's time in office, right, he lost two elections. He lost the 2018 midterms, Republicans were crushed. And then he lost the 2020 re-election. And this is normal. When one side gets into office, they usually overplay their hand and there's a backlash and that leads the other side to joining office. You should always strive for win-win scenarios.
exploitation versus exploration, stability versus adaptability, egotism versus altruism, cooperation versus competition. Yeah, I love competition in many things, but not in all things. And I think if I were a barista, right, who is not particularly well versed in the news or in history, I would not want the aggravation of being pulled into these, these sensitive issues. Like, do you enjoy having to tiptoe around things with your friends or your workmates or your flatmate or right? you don't enjoy that right that's human like uh, Elliot Blatt and I you know, disagree on all sorts of issues but uh, thank god we're friends because neither one of us feels any need to tiptoe around you know hot button issues like we have different perspectives on vaccination and ADHD medication and and uh, whether people living in the country is superior to people living in the city and all sorts of other issues. But uh, to the best of my knowledge, you know, Elliot feels no need to tiptoe around these issues and I feel no tip need to tiptoe them around him. Now, the more Elliot and I agree on, the more solid is the basis of our friendship. And the more we disagree on, the more unstable is our friendship. So when I was playing a podcast, If Books Could Kill, is very critical of a, of a book that Elliot respected, The 48 Laws of Power. Yeah, that, that, that does place a strain on, on a relationship. Uh, and so we, we naturally extend ourselves you know, to, to our car, to our favorite teams, to our favorite politics, to our favorite books and music, and then any attack or dent on the things that we have invested ourselves in will viscerally be experienced as a personal attack. So, you know, Elliot, Elliot was wonderfully honest and open when he said he felt like I was playing that podcast that books could kill and its critical perspective on the 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. He, he naturally, normally, you know, experienced that as an attack on him which is how it works. Right? We invest ourselves in causes, people, teams, objects, you know, beyond ourselves, and any dent in those favored things you know, is experienced as a personal attack. So if you believe in the marriage as a heterosexual institution between one man and one woman, just the very existence of same-sex marriage is going to cause you visceral pain. You believe in the U.S. military as a heterosexual institution, right? Any open uh, policy of you know welcoming in uh, non-heteros into the military will be experienced as like a, a personal assault. Sometimes the assault will be experienced you know, more painfully, more viscerally than a literal punch in the stomach, because we we all have things that we we hold sacred. So. If you're at work and uh, say someone you're working with is a big Kansas City Chiefs fan, right? if you strongly identify as a Las Vegas Raiders fan or any kind of rival to the Chiefs, right, that's going to put a strain on the relationship between you. So there are probably pretty good reasons why general work etiquette encourages people to 
and discuss hot button issues at work because it does cause cause division and reduces social cohesion and uh, this Israeli shop owner right that's that's what you'd have to expect Kenneth Brown says everything should be seen through the lens of the tripartite class system the Reese's actions can be explained by the fact that he is in the warrior class and a wrong job okay so I strongly disagree with any notion that one story or one hero system uh, can you know, explain all of life. So I, I do think we're living in a postmodern world where no one narrative is uh, up to the task. I'm not even sure that that particular explanation is the, is the best one. But uh, New York Times shows in this article why it's a valuable publication and why I spend uh, $8 a month uh, subscribing to it because uh, Fox News and the New York Post are essentially tabloid operations that deliberately seize on one side of a story and play up its most you know, sensational parts. And more nuanced and, and fair and objective looks, such as the New York Times provides, is, is valuable. So, precisely because I don't spend much time thinking about Palestinian suffering or the arguments of the Palestinian cause, that ironically makes me uh, more sympathetic to those Palestinians who don't you know, really care for the Israeli side or the Israeli cause, because you know, I'm in touch with the, I think, the, the tribal nature of people. And uh, when you promote something, right, let's say you start talking about politics or human biodiversity or evolution or atheism or you know, whatever your pet topics are, you're just as likely to alienate people and drive people away as recruit them. So it's one reason that I, I, I try to stay away from activism. I'm much more comfortable in the world of the bystander. I think, uh, I think I'm, I'm, there's an Enneagram role for this, where I tend to be the observer by, by nature of my personality, though I do tend to become much happier when I deign to join the, the dance. So I've certainly gone on to more than my share of uh, pro-Israel rallies. Do I see post-modernity as something to be overcome? No. I see uh, post-modernity as, uh, as a fact of life. It's the water that we swim in and it contains some valuable insights such as there is no one, <coughs> no one narrative that is, uh, that is adequate. It, it, I know post-modernity is like a boogeyman on parts of the right. But uh, I see it as, as a reality, just like I don't see situational ethics as a bad thing. Right? Ethics can be both absolute and situational. Right? The situation determines what's the absolute ethic that might be you know, binding at that time. What's the best take on AI that I've seen? Okay, so a lot of people have asked me about AI. I've got a lot of friends who are really addicted to the we are doomed narrative. And so 
few years ago we had doomed supposedly because of Muslim immigration and then we had doomed because uh, younger Americans are turning against Israel. Uh, we are doomed because Jewish history says that you know, Jews don't last in a country for very long before they're kicked out. <coughs> and uh, now they're seizing on the, on the narrative that we are doomed because of AI. And so I, I don't buy into that. I have, I have no respect for that, that perspective and many of the people pushing it. And here's my favorite perspective on AI. It's just a, an extension of the suggested you know, wording that uh, Google and various email systems you know, offer to you and you can just press tab or some button and it just auto-completes or Google suggests. Google suggests, you know, how you can answer an email and it's easy just to click on that. So I'm sure AI will have an effect on this world, but I don't think it's the, the magic key to reality or to what's coming. I don't think it's going to doom us. It's just an extension of you know, various email systems suggesting how you might reply to an email. Mitch Heimer is extremely overrated. Is there a competitor to John Mitch uh, I like Eldridge Colby. So he served in the uh, Trump administration, foreign policy advisor. He was influential in uh, the Trump administration's strategic perspective on dealing with China in the Pacific. So Eldridge Colby is, is a favorite uh, geopolitical analyst of, of mine. I've just started getting into the Duran uh, podcast. I don't know much about it, but the, I don't know, five hours total that I've, I've listened to it. I've you know, appreciated the outside the mainstream perspectives. I still think that John Mearsheimer is a giant. So all the articles that I've read that purport to debunk or obliterate or puncture uh, John Mearsheimer, I just don't see it. I think his analysis stands out really well, even though in, in many areas I, I disagree with him. So he sees no problem with the massive amount of immigration into the U.S. He, he would have voted for, I think he did vote for Bernie Sanders in 2016. So I certainly have my disagreements with uh, Mearsheimer, but his fundamental theoretical models about how great nations work, great states work, uh, I think are particularly solid. Man is merging with the machine. Well, as long as we've had machines, you know, from the invention of swords and spears, that's been going on. I've been uh, listening to the Walter Isaacson biography of Elon Musk. My God, what a, what a difficult, you know, maniacal, challenging, obnoxious, Man, Elon Musk is uh, incredibly self-defeating in many of his tweets, but uh, also a man of giant achievement. And very much like Steve, Steve Jobs. Whew. And then I've been reading the Uri Kaufman new book on uh, the Yom Kippur War. It's just uh, a great read. It uh, gets you up to date with the latest uh, research and discoveries with regard to the 1973 war when uh, 
Egypt and Syria attacked Israel and caught it largely un unprepared. And I've just uh, downloaded on Audible the latest uh, uh, biography of, of Friedman. Come on, who's the, who's the monetarist, uh, Friedman? A <laughs> uh, long time uh, University of Chicago economics professor. So one of the foremost pr promoters of monetarism. So that's uh, next on my agenda. So, and I got up at 1am to watch the World Cup of cricket final on, on Sunday. Like I was pretty useless for much of the day. So I just kind of laid around when I'm feeling useless and tired, I just lay around up and just watch sports with the sound off and listen to my audible books. Which countries have an active spying operation in the US? I think every country worth its salt would have an active uh, spying operation in the US, but I would expect that uh, uh, China, Russia, and Israel probably leading the way. Israel, because it's, it's in such a precarious position, it has no strategic depth, it just has to make one major mistake and it's all over. So, uh, history speaks. Uh, that, that character, uh, Matthew Cockrell from London School of Economics did a recent video on does Israel share Western values? And I think the large part of the reason that Israel does not share Western values, say, as much as Canada, is the precariousness of its position. So during the Civil War, like Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus and you know, all sorts of other normative aspects of, uh, of Western jurisprudence. So when a nation is at war and when a nation's fighting for its survival, it's not going to be chill and uh, as committed to human rights as uh, a nation whose uh, survival is, is not at risk. So because Israel's survival is so precarious, it would make sense they'd be strongly incentivized to have a sophisticated and effective uh, spying operation in the US. Uh, Russia and China have had the same because they're in a great power competition with the US. I mean, if your, if your livelihood and the welfare of your family was dependent upon your, you know, your relationship with one person, your, your boss, right, you'd probably want to know as much about your boss as possible. So David appeared on uh, Keith Wood's stream. Uh, he seemed to have received a lot of uh, positive feedback from uh, the Keith Woods crowd. Haven't, haven't seen the show. Talk to you later.